Super Talk Mississippi media production. Hi, this is Dr. Andy Barlow with the Chiropractic Physician Center of Tupelo and author of the number one bestseller, The Code Breaker. Are you sick and tired of the medical merry-go-round? Are you looking for a potential solution to your health problem? Be sure and listen to our podcast, The Code Breaker. And welcome back in on a Wednesday. It's the Rebel Report. I'm Michael Borky. Thank you for making the podcast a part of your day. And a couple of things to get to. Coming up, I've got a conversation with a guy named Ben Mintz. You may not be familiar with him, but you will be soon enough. He does radio in Baton Rouge on ESPN 104.5. He is an old Miss grad, for what that's worth to you. Um, ex-poker player, or he still plays poker, but ex-professional poker player, and a gambling aficionado. So we talked about uh, NFL futures. He gave you picks in the NFL. We talked about how to bet on the NBA upcoming, how to bet on Major League Baseball upcoming. Really good, fun conversation. He told a couple stories about life on the road as a poker pro. Really excited for you to hear that coming up here in a little bit uh, from Ben Mintz, uh, my guy Ben. And then also we're going to talk about some Twitter drama that happened last night. I got a couple of DMs asking me to explain a tweet that I had where basically all I said was, I'm off Twitter for a few hours and I miss all the fun. And I had a couple of DMs asking me what I was referring to. So we'll talk about that coming up as well. But first, I do want to remind you that the podcast is brought to you every day by LBs just across from Universe. I did it again. I will never get this correct. But still go by and see LBs just across from Kroger on University Avenue. Got it right that time. Just across from Kroger on University Avenue, the best place in the state of Mississippi to buy meat. Go by and see Greg. Tell him we sent you. Get a daily lunch special as well while you're there. And if you're planning to get behind the grill this weekend, there's no better place to get your meat than LB's there in Oxford. So we'll start with the uh, the Twitter drama. Now, like I said, I got a couple of direct messages asking me to explain on the podcast exactly what I was referring to and what happened last night. So here we go. There was uh, a decommitment. And Ole Miss is already pretty small recruiting class last night. Uh, from the kicker, uh, Jack Tannehill, uh, Oxford's Jack Tannehill, he said on Twitter, quote, thank you to all of the Ole Miss coaches that recruited me, especially Coach Luke Rippon and Coach Peeler and Coach Chapman. I have decided that it's best for me to decommit from Ole Miss. My recruitment is 100% open. And not really a big deal, right? Because kids commit and decommit all the time. And with all due respect to the position, a kicker committing or decommitting is not really significant news. I mean, that's just kind of how it is. I'm sorry. Uh, So that happened, and then a tweet went out that said, the 2020 Ole Miss football recruiting class currently is an absolute disaster. And that was possibly in reference to the kicker decommitting. And then after that, his mom, the mayor, retweeted a handful of things. She retweeted her son's tweet, which, again, you know, not a problem at all. She also retweeted the one that said the 2020 Ole Miss football recruiting class currently is an absolute disaster. She retweeted Lane Kiffin's never kick field goal, score touchdowns, and a bunch of other stuff talking about uh, her son on Twitter. And so that's kind of where we are right now. And, and by the way, all of those came shortly before Ole Miss got a commitment from an elite level kicker out of Louisiana. So 
Tannehill decommits. All that stuff happens on Twitter. Ole Miss gets a commitment from a high-profile kicker. If that, I mean, you know, laugh all you want. That is apparently a thing. Um, immediately thereafter. So it's Occam's razor tells you that one plus one equals two and decommitment happened because Ole Miss found better option at kicker. And clearly it rubbed uh, at least one person the wrong way. And so I'm going to go easier... Uh, on on everybody involved uh, than some people may have hoped for. Because the kid did nothing wrong. Um, his tweet is fine. It's absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with announcing that you've decommitted on Twitter and thanking the coaches from the previous staff that recruited you apparently more than the new staff. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. That's That's just fine. That's normal recruiting. It's okay. And uh, mom being upset that her son was passed up by somebody who somebody else is also you know not worth ripping on or anything i mean i've been a parent for only 9 months now but so i don't know what it's like to see your your kid get rejected or or whatever happened um so i don't know what it's like and i don't know how i'd handle it so i'm not going to criticize somebody for for maybe not handling it perfectly um Rule number one of Twitter was broken, and and that's never tweet. Uh, But, you know, a a parent is allowed to be upset online, I think. But, you know, as a public official, you should probably know better and not do something like that. Especially when um, the people that you are um, anger retweeting about uh, are the lifeblood of the town that you have been elected to lead. But again, it's not near as big of a deal as a conversation I had this morning. Um, a friend of mine told me, you better rip them all apart, man. And it's it's not that serious. Um, it's probably something that shouldn't have happened. In fact, it's definitely something that should not have happened. Because again, the mayor of a town that is so dependent on Ole Miss football shouldn't be tweeting stuff that is anti old Miss football, but it's really not that big of a deal. It's not the end of the world. It, it's something that shouldn't have happened, but uh, I, I'm sorry for letting you down, a uh, friend of mine who listens to this that asked me to rip everybody to shreds. I'm just, I'm not going to do that. It just, every, I mean, you should know better and it shouldn't have happened, but this is how things work or how things should work though. And it's kind of another example of a lesson to be learned where you don't sign kids because of where they're from. That That's not how you win at a high level, especially in a state like Mississippi where you can't just sign kids to sign kids because if you can go get someone better somewhere else, you have enough competition and people pulling strings in this state where if you only rely on Mississippi kids to, to build your classes because that's what you're supposed to do is build from within the walls of your own state, well, you're setting yourself up for failure. The job of a Division One SEC, especially football coach, is to win games the best way they possibly can. It does not matter where somebody's from. If you can get better, you go get better. If the kid's from California, if the kid's from Alaska or Argentina, you go get the better player. If it's marginal, you still go get them. Yes, you should 
try to establish recruiting grounds in Mississippi because the state does really produce really good talent. It's a talent-rich state, underrated state in producing talent. But if you can get a better player from somewhere else, you go get a better player from somewhere else. If there's a three-star safety in Mississippi and a four-star safety in Texas, and you can go get that safety from Texas, you, you go do that. You can't prioritize people based on location if you can get somebody better somewhere else. And uh, that seems to be what happened last night, is there was a better option, so uh, the, the coaching staff at Ole Miss decided, we need to go get that better option. Sorry. That's just kind of how it works. But let's talk about recruiting, and especially the current status of Ole Miss's recruiting class. Again, the the tweet that really set people off that was retweeted was, the 2020 Ole Miss football recruiting class currently is an absolute disaster. So there's a lot of layers to the current status of recruiting in college football right now. And... A lot of things can be true at once. I'm going to say this to you all the time, and I say it on the radio show all the time. A lot of things can be true at once, and for some reason people have a hard time distinguishing uh, between multiple things that can also be true. For example, right now, talking about recruiting, I think, is in July is a bad idea. I'm not going to do it much on this podcast. I think in order to cover recruiting adequately, it's got to be all you do. And I'm, not ju- I'm just not going to do that here. It doesn't interest me that much, but also when you're, when you're covering recruiting months and months away from signing day, so there are so many variables and so much that can change and so much nuance that needs to be applied, and a lot of people don't understand it, so I just avoid it completely. I'll talk about recruiting when it comes closer uh, to signing day. I'm not going to spend my time... While the coronavirus is everywhere, shutting visit days and stuff down, I'm not going to talk about it at length here on this podcast. I think it's a waste of time to to dab your feet into recruiting. You've either got to go all in or you've got to avoid it until the big days. That's just my opinion. If you think I'm wrong and you want me to cover it more, let me know. I, I want to service you the best I can. But to me, covering recruiting with everything else that's going on is a, is a bad idea for me. I don't think it's what most of you want to hear, but if I'm wrong, please tell me that I'm wrong. So that is true. There are a lot of things working against Lane Kiffin and Mike Leach and Eli Drinkwitz at at Missouri and Sam Pittman at Arkansas because they are first-year head coaches. It's easier for Georgia to recruit kids during a pandemic because last year you got to bring kids to junior days all summer long. You've been established there. You've already had underclassmen visit your campus. You've been established. But in Lane Kiffin's case, he's only been allowed to have official visitors on his campus since he's been the coach for like three and a half weeks. The coronavirus shut down official visits. They didn't get to have spring practice and bring kids in. They haven't been able to have junior days. No official visits. They haven't been able to establish any kind of presence at their own school because of everything that's going on. So that can also be true. It can be true that the coronavirus has really limited new coaches' ability to recruit. It can also be true that Ole Miss only has six commitments right now. And that, if that number doesn't improve, then there's potentially something wrong. I'm looking at rivals right now. That's just the database I pulled up first. 
uh, instead of 24-7. I'm just looking at the Rivals' national recruiting rankings. Ole Miss currently, according to Rivals, is 81st in the country. They have seven total commits, one of which is a four-star. There are not... Okay, so I'm going to stop there, actually. That is cause for question. As yes, it can be true that the, the coronavirus has really, really hindered Ole Miss's ability to establish a recruiting footprint and bring guys in for visits and start building their class. It can also be true that the class size is alarming. Only seven guys at this point. Don't look at rankings. People get so caught up in looking at recruiting rankings so far out of signing day, and they don't apply context to them. So don't look at the fact that Ole Miss is 81st in the country. I'll explain why in a minute. Don't look at that. Look at the number of commitments. That's where that's a little alarming that they only have seven guys in the class right now. It's a little alarming. That does need to improve as the year goes on, obviously. But when you start looking at actual rankings right now, let me provide some context for you. When you look at the current recruiting rankings, Ohio State is number one. They have 19 total commitments. Tennessee has 23, okay? If you scroll down the list a little bit, Louisville has the number 13 class in the country right now. So you would think that, wow, Louisville's doing great in recruiting. Actually, not really. Uh, Louisville, of their 22 recruits, has one single four-star, 19 three-stars, and their star ranking average is less than a three-star in their recruiting class. Let's keep scrolling, though. Missouri. So Eli Drinkwitz, that's what I've, I've seen people say. Well, Missouri hasn't had a problem with the coronavirus. Well, Missouri is number 18 in the country, according to rivals. 18 commitments, only two of which are four stars. That is not a class that will stay in the top 20 or 30. That is not a good recruiting class. They're only 18th because of how many players they have. Rutgers, right now, has the number 20 class in college football. They have 22 commits. Zero five-stars, zero four-stars, 16 three-stars. That is a 2.73 average. That is not the number 20 class in the country. Once everybody fills their classes up, Rutgers will free fall. That is not a good recruiting class. Let's look at some more. Georgia Tech is 17th, one four-star, 2.82-star average. Baylor is 28th, 17 commitments, zero four-stars, 14 three-stars. Let's keep looking. Maryland. Uh, They actually have three four-stars, which still isn't a good class, but they're top 30. Boston College, way ahead of Ole Miss, right? 18 commitments, one of which is a four-star, 14 three-stars, 2.89 average star ranking in the class. North Carolina State, 32nd, same thing. Arkansas, way ahead of Ole Miss, right? How is Sam Pittman able to do this, but Lane Kiffin is not? Arkansas has 15 commitments. All 15 are three stars. That's not a good recruiting class. It's not. The only reason why they're ranked higher than Ole Miss is just because they have more players. And it's July 22nd. It's not even August yet. We are months away from signing day. So when you look at recruiting class rankings, you're not applying appropriate context at all. At all. And it's disingenuous. Oh, Memphis is ranked ahead of Ole Miss. Yeah, 17 commitments, 2.82 average star ranking, zero four stars. Northwestern's ahead of Ole Miss right, right now. You want to guess where Northwestern finishes? Not ahead of Ole Miss. Cincinnati, they have 15 commits. That's the only reason why. 2.87 star uh, recruiting ranking average. 
The, the, the list goes on and on. The only reason that Ole Miss is where they are is just simply numbers. Like I said, all these things can be true at once. The coronavirus has severely limited Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss's ability to establish a recruiting base in a class because they are first year, uh, a staff in their first year. It can also be true that it's alarming that they only have seven commitments, according to rivals. And it can also be true that talking about recruiting rankings right now is disingenuous because it's simply a numbers game and not a quality game. All those things can be true at once. But that gets lost on people. There is not a single program ranked ahead of Ole Miss right now in recruiting rankings that has the same number of commits as them or fewer. Not one. Not a single one. In fact, ahead of Ole Miss right now, there are only two other schools, three other schools, excuse me, that have single-digit commits right now. That is why they're 81st. And again, it can be true that that's alarming, that they only have seven commits, but also um, things are going to change once they start adding more players. If you say that, oh, well, they're behind Memphis, let's talk again in December and tell me who's ahead of who. Once Ole Miss's class fills out and Memphis's largely stays the same because they're basically done as far as the numbers go, um, tell me who's ahead of who. That's why I don't co- really cover recruiting in the summer, because it's disingenuous to do so. Arkansas right now is 50 spots ahead of Ole Miss in the rankings. Ole Miss has more four stars than Arkansas, partially because Arkansas has zero. But don't look at recruiting rankings in the summer. They've got to get on their horse a little bit. Again, those all of those things can be true at once. They've got to get on their horse a little bit. But if you're going to talk about recruiting rankings this time of year, you have to apply the appropriate context. And a lot of people uh, just simply don't do that. And I think, I would like to think I, I did a decent enough job applying context for you here. So let's turn the page now. We'll uh, go to Ben Mintz right now. ESPN 104.5 in Baton Rouge. Uh, we talk NFL uh, gambling and, and Major League Baseball and NBA and some stories about his time as a poker pro. So we'll go to that right now. Here's Ben Mintz, and we'll see you on the other side. Hey, welcome on Ben Mintz from ESPN 104.5 in Baton Rouge. You can hear him on Game Time every weekday from 6 to 8 p.m. And, and Ben, this is a new thing for you. So you just started there uh, at ESPN in Baton Rouge and uh, kind of something new when it comes to local radio. You guys are doing kind of a gambling focused show, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, so basically, a uh, big blessing. I got hired by 1.5 ESPN Bears a couple weeks ago. They shook up their lineup down here. Uh, and Jimmy Ott, who's been their kind of their sports gambling guy, and I are a 6 to 8 p.m show called Jimmy Ott's Game Time. And, you know, when you look at ESPN Baton Rouge, they do a better job covering LSU than almost any radio station does covering their team in the country. But uh, they're wanting to add some sports gambling, maybe some fantasy, and that's kind of my skill set. So I'm excited about it. It, It's kind of funny. The state of Louisiana, I mean, everybody knows what especially New Orleans is like and the culture down there. So you can drive through and get a frozen daiquiri. You can drink wherever you want, whenever you want to, 
But you can't legally bet on sports in that state yet. No, you can't. And it's actually going to be a, a parish by parish vote. It's on the presidential election ballot on November the 3rd, uh, feeling like it's going to pass everywhere. And that's kind of part of a big part of why I believe I was hired as they see the sports gambling being passed in November and that being a big part of the future uh, of this business in the state. So you expect uh, the area around where you are to, to let that go and have sports gambling? I do. So basically in Baton Rouge, they've got LaBerge Casino in Baton Rouge and they want LaBerge is going to want it uh, to pass. And then that sports book, I think, is going to you know, be a huge. Uh, I feel like we're going to be affiliated with them, hopefully, in the future. Uh, awesome. Certainly we'll see. Knock on knock on wood on that front. But I think that's what's coming. Uh, when you look at Harrah's New Orleans, I think they could get a big sports book as well. You know, so many people have been leaving Louisiana, running over to the Mississippi coast. And, you know, we have a show every Sunday at uh, Magnolia Bluff sports book at Natchez during football season from 10 to noon. Uh, so a lot of Louisiana people have been actually going to the state of Mississippi to sports gamble. Well, I'm sure, uh, the casinos here in Mississippi, thank you for your business, at least, uh, in the meantime, but, so let's start there, actually. When it comes to your journey into sports radio, you took a little bit of, uh, of a different path than most people. We talked about this on the radio show a couple years ago when you joined us, but you've been a professional poker player, and you still kind of do that, don't you? Yeah, so basically, uh, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm a little older than, uh, than you are, Mr. Borky. I, I went to <laughs> Ole Miss back in 2001. I was there for the Eli Manning era. And about my fourth, fifth year of college at Oxford, I, I got real into playing poker in the ATO frat house. And then I'd go play in Horseshoe Tunica and just play online. And, you know, it wasn't anything special. I was a broke kid with 200 bucks to my name. And one night I just hop into a tournament on party poker. It's 20 bucks and there's 2,400 people in it. And I just win it for 10,000 in uh, April of 06. And like right when that happened, I mean, you know, we had to see where that was going to go. And uh, I basically was a pro poker player from 2006 to 14 and uh, rose. I was top 200 in the world at my peak online. I did well in the world wow. series main event in, in, in 2011. I got 75th in the world series main event was the, the, the peak of it all. Uh, but I actually went back, I went back to Ole Miss when I was 31 years old in 2014 to finish my finance degree. And then I, and then I kind of lucked into a sports radio job after I graduated in 2015. So I've taken, it's been a long and winding road, but uh, it's certainly been fun. What's the biggest hand you ever won as a pro or just playing poker uh, the in general? Hand, the, the, oh, the best hand for sure is I actually told the story on ESPN Baton Rouge game time last night. Uh, day three of the World Series of Poker main event in 2011. Uh, I'm, I'm doing really well at my table. And one of the top five pros in the world named Patrick Antonius, who's a former pro tennis player, but he's just European beast from Finland. I mean, he's, he's amazing. He comes and sits down immediately to my right. Uh, in, during the main event, and he had so many chips, you couldn't even see his Ziploc bag as he walked up to the table. And so he sits down at this table, and he doesn't know who any of the people are. He doesn't know who I am. I'm some random to him. And uh, he starts raising every hand and just going crazy. And I, I was on his left, so I start playing some hands against him, and we start battling, and it sets up this one hand where he raises preflop, and I had king-queen, which if you know anything about Hold'em, like pretty good hand, but not like you know super great. And I re-raised him, and then he looks at me and just bombs it. Like, I made it 19500 He makes it 64 k This is day three of the World Series main event. I have 200 k and he had 160 So he bombs it to 64 k and I'm about to fold because I'm like, why am I messing with one of the top five players in the world here when all these idiots are at this table? 
And as I'm about to fold, my instincts like went off in my stomach. It was just like, you know what? This dude just don't think you got the heart to, to, to make a move on him here on day three of the 10K World Series main. And I bombed it and uh, went all in with King Queen in the spot. And he folded. And I showed it to the table and people just lost their minds. Oh, and man. nobody wanted no and nobody wanted to mess with me the whole rest of the day. I just dominated this table. But the only bummer of it all is a shame like ESPN cameras were all over Antonius, but they missed that hand. But oh, know, of course. it still happened. So were you on TV then? Because I remember watching the World Series as a kid. I, I've been so I've never been at a TV. What they do is they have three TV featured tables. During the main, and I've never gotten pulled to one of the featured tables, but I've been on the broadcast at side tables or walking around. Uh, you see me because I, I did well in the main event in 2018. I got 327th in it. So I've played it five times, and I've cashed in it twice, and I'm a, a big winner in that lifetime. If you don't mind me asking, what does 75th in the World Series pay out? Uh, uh, it paid it paid ninety thousand dollars, which is the biggest Whoa. win I've ever had. But 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 I'll be transparent for your listeners. Uh, you know, it's a ten thousand dollar buy in. What I usually do for the main event is put up fifteen hundred or two thousand, and then I sell off action to investors because ten thousand so much for a poker tournament, as you know. And so like usually I'm playing for like thirty to forty percent of myself in the main. And honestly, that's how a lot of the poker world works: is uh, people sell, investing and that kind of thing. I had no idea that happened. So we'll, we'll get to the sports in a little bit, but this is so interesting to me. So when, when you say that you get investors, so you, you put up, what'd you say, $2,000 for yourself. You got to find the other mm-hmm. 8K somewhere. How do you, like, who do you talk to to go find that? And then what's in it for them? Well, so basically it's kind of the poker world is kind of similar to the golf world and that if you're in it, you're in it, and everybody's going to the same stop. So when you look at Southern poker especially, uh, Harris New Orleans has World Series NOLA every year, Beau Rivage Biloxi, the million-dollar heater, World Series of Poker Tunica at the Horseshoes Big uh, a couple times a year, go to the Golden Moon in Philadelphia, has got some tourney series. Everybody in Louisiana Mississippi is going to the same stuff because we're all on that Southern poker circuit, kind of like a, like kind of like a minor league golf circuit, I guess is the way I put it. And so you get to you play against the same people all the time. And so you get to know all these people you play against and you become, you know, you compete against them, but then you become friends with them. And, you know, it's uh, it's kind of a smaller network. And so once people know you're good, you can sell action easily if people have respect for you. Man, that's awesome. I, I had no idea it worked like that. Truth be told, I, I'm one of those people that I've wanted to go into a casino and play Hold'em because I like I kind of know how to do it. I know how it works. I certainly like couldn't read somebody or anything like that, but I, I understand the process of the game, and I've always wanted to sit down and give it a shot, but I'm afraid I would do the same thing that people that don't know how to play blackjack do and just piss off the rest of the table by doing some <laughs> kind of amateur move. So I've never done it. I've been scared to do it. Well, what's interesting, I'll, I'll follow up on that for a second. It, 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 when you think about going to the casino and playing poker, it seems a little intimidating if you hadn't done it, if you're used to just playing home games with your friends. But, man, it's really not at all. And I'll tell you the truth. A lot of older people play poker in the South. That's kind of older, retired people that have hobbies. And, man, those are just they're, – they're in there to have a good time, man. They've made their money. They've enjoyed life. They just want to go in there and be social and have fun. And what I find is it's all about just being friendly to people at the table. Don't go in there with a hoodie – and, you know, sunglasses and, you know, your headphones, your bows, like, you know, go, people are in there in the South because they like to be social and have fun. And so if you're just friendly at the table, it's really laid back. And uh, I think that's the way to go about it. We've got Ben Mintz with us, 104.5 ESPN, Baton Rouge. Uh, let's look at, let's start with the NFL. I know I told you we're going to talk NBA and baseball and we're going to get there. I mean, opening day is tomorrow. 
uh, for baseball, and then the NBA starts next week. But I want to start with the NFL, especially since you're in a Saints market. We have a lot of Saints fans around the state of Mississippi. When you look at the futures for let's just start with Super Bowl and work our way backwards. But the Saints have the fourth best odds in the NFL, plus 1,200 or so, depending on where you look. That's incredible value, isn't it? Well, the thing I think about this year, we've got all new dynamics in play for analyzing gambling. And I think the thing the Saints have going for them more than anybody is the continuity in the organization. Same coaching staff, you know, only really adding, what, two, three rookies to an already loaded roster. You know, these teams hadn't had off seasons. You know, all these teams that have new coaches and new quarterbacks and tons of rookies and free agents. You know, the first few weeks of the year are going to be kind of like preseason for them. And when you look at the Saints, so established across the board, uh, should be a huge advantage to get off to a big start. Just that continuity this year, I think. Do you think that adversely affects uh, – Baltimore is not so much young anymore. I mean, this will be Lamar Jackson's third year in the NFL as a starter. So that's uh, – he's, he's not a veteran yet, but he kind of understands what it takes. But what about Tampa? I mean, it's – Brady's a veteran. Bruce Arians is a veteran. Gronk's a veteran. Their receiver, receiving core has been intact for a long time, but it's all new. Does that, if you're betting on Tampa futures right now, because you can get them 14 to 1500, is that something that should give you pause, maybe? Because they, although they've worked out, but still no preseason games. I kind of adding on to my thoughts about the Saints' continuity. Like when you look at Tampa. Bruce Arians is a hell of a coach, man. I mean, you know, he almost got Carson Palmer to the Super Bowl. He's he's never, you know, getting a coach with Tom Brady. He did a great job with Andrew Luck and Ben Roethlisberger. You know, you usually think about Arians, you think about a vertical offense with eight, nine, and ten-step drops and vertical routes. Obviously, when you saw Tom Brady's crew with Josh McDaniels, you think about a point guard at quarterback, just getting the ball out of his hands, distributing it quickly. So I'm curious to see how Arians adapts to Tom Brady, which I think he will because Arians is a great coach. But the Tampa thing – you kind of just mentioned it. Uh, they got Brady's having to learn the new system. They're, they've got a good run defense. Devin White's going to be an all-pro linebacker, speaking of Baton Rouge and LSU guys. But I still have some questions with their secondary. In my honest opinion of Tampa, I think they're going to be a lot better team in November and December than they are in September. And I think the thing when I look at them, I like the Saints to win this division. I wouldn't be surprised if Tampa's 3-3 three and three or 3-4 three and four and people are talking, oh, what's wrong with the Bucks?" And then they end up 9-7 and seven in the wild card. I think they're going to be a lot tougher down the stretch when Brady and Gronk and Arians kind of get to know each other and get it all figured out. Chiefs are the favorite. Ravens just close behind. San Francisco uh, third at plus 900. Mentioned the Saints and the Bucks. Is there anybody outside of that group that you think has pretty good value on a Super Bowl future? Whoo, man. Well, I'm very curious. I, I don't know about winning the Super Bowl. I think I'm going to get some heat for this because I'm not like a Cowboys fan, but I think they could be they could have a shot in the NFC if they get it rolling this year at like 10 to 1 to win the NFC. Uh, I like the McCarthy hire. I think he the big thing was he needed a year off to get new ideas and stuff because his playbook was getting a little stale in Green Bay. But he took that year off. I love their move hiring Mike Nolan. I mean, I hated it for the Saints losing their linebackers coach who did such a great job the last few years. But I like that coaching staff, and I think Dallas has a lot of talent on their roster, and I also just think the NFC East with the Giants and Redskins is weak, and so it makes their schedule uh, a little easier. So I actually like the Cowboys more than I have in quite some time, which, you know, that's not a pertinent. I'm certainly not a fan, and uh, we'll leave it at that. And the <laughs> NFC West, the NFC West is interesting. I think the Rams are falling. I think the Rams have missed their window. I think that you know when you look at them paying Todd Gurley and Brandon Cooks for 
both no longer there. They gave Jared Goff $34 million and he struggled. I kind of feel like, you know, they were the, the hot thing with McVay, but I kind of feel like they're heading the wrong direction. And you look at the rest of that division, San Francisco almost won in the Super Bowl. You know, Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll in Seattle obviously have it going. And then Arizona, you know, I don't know about Super Bowl-wise, but going to be a lot of fun. You know, certainly since they added DeAndre Hopkins, and I thought that they were, you know, even though the record was 5-11 last year, they were very, very competitive. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what they look like as well. You can get the Seahawks to win that division, by the way, at plus 225 right now. The the Niners thing is interesting because their their defensive line is just, uh, I mean, one of the best I've seen in a long, long time. Kyle Shanahan, amazing coach. I still don't know what they have in Garoppolo, and I feel like they'd say the same thing. Uh, You can win with them with the running game and the defense. I don't know how necessarily elite he is, but I I don't know. I'm not like all in on the Niners this year because I think the depth of that division is tough. And, man, you look at the culture Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson have created – I mean, it's just a winning culture. It, it, every year in the draft, they always take someone in the first round that's projected fourth round, and it always cracks me up because they just trust their system and what John Snyder does, is just, uh, their general manager, so much. Uh, it, it just always blows me away, their consistency. Speaking of divisions, uh, back to uh, the home team, if you will. Uh, NFC South, is there any reason, if you're at the sports book, to put money down on anybody but the Saints to win the division? Well, I don't know about them winning the division, but the continuity thing that you've heard me preach already multiple times uh, on this on this uh, podcast, Atlanta was one in seven last year, and I I can't believe Dan Quinn saved his job. I mean, they were one in seven. They go six and two down the stretch. They had road wins at San Francisco and at NOLA. You know, they were playing some good football, and then they've got the continuity thing going too. They're over under seven and a half wins. I'm not saying Atlanta's going to be some great team, but could get, could they go nine and seven in a year like this? Contend for a wild card? Sure. So I'm a little, I like Atlanta a little more than the, the public does. I don't know that they can beat the Saints to win the NFC South, though. They're, they're over under win totals only seven and a half. Yep, seven and a half because they were one in so they were one in seven last year. And what happened that second half of the year, there were two teams that came on strong at the end of the second half that nobody noticed. It's Atlanta in the NFC and the Denver Broncos in the AFC once they got Drew Locke in there and some of those young guys started emerging. And I kind of feel like both of those teams are undervalued going into this year because people had already written them off. And I don't know if people you know, were paying that much attention to how much those teams improved at the end last year. We spent a ton of time talking about the AFC South last year with the runs that the, that the Titans made. And there's some Titans fans in North Mississippi as well. Um, Colts at plus 120, Titans at plus 170, the Texans and the Jags kind of distant third and fourth. Is Phillip Rivers really that much of a difference maker? I know the roster's good in Indianapolis, but the Titans are basically intact, and they played really good ball at the end of last year. I think it's a crime against humanity how disrespected Tennessee is getting here. I I think, I mean, you talk about a team that went on the road back-to-back weeks in the playoffs and won at New England and at Baltimore. I mean, that's just incredible. And I have a lot of faith in Mike Brable as a head coach. I certainly think, you know, the, the, the scheme they had for that playoff game against Lamar Jackson, keeping him in the pocket, making him make the long sideline throws, not letting him get those seam throws he was so comfortable with. I mean, it was just genius what they did to Lamar in that game. And I just think when you look at Tennessee last year, they were 2-4 and four until Ryan Tannehill got inserted from Mariota. They averaged over 30 points a game with Tannehill. He had the number one QBR in the league. You know, is Tannehill one of the best quarterbacks in the league? No. But when he's got an offensive line and a running game with Henry and a weapon like A.J. Brown, who led the NFL in receiving the final six weeks of the year, week 12 through 17, 
I don't know how this team isn't favored. I, I really like the squad, and uh, I think they should be the favorite in the AFC South. And I also heard Phillip Rivers hasn't even set foot in Indy's Indy yet at all, and that's the continuity thing. I don't. I kind of think Rivers is done as well. I know they're going to try to run the ball because the Colts have such a great offensive line. They drafted Jonathan Taylor, but man, I think they got this wrong. I think Tennessee's the favorite. Uh, they almost made the Super Bowl, and they were a completely different team from when they put Ryan Tannehill in. So I like the Titans in this division. If your book has it available, an interesting pick that I've seen is just receiving yard totals. I mean, you can find those kind of props most places. Does Michael Thomas repeat? I know they just added Emmanuel Sanders, but he's still the betting favorite, at least the odds that I'm looking at right now. Is that the guy that that is going to lead the NFL in receiving yards again? Uh, my thing with Thomas, you know, the beauty of his consistency level and what you get week to week with him. I mean, I don't know if I've seen anything like it. You know exactly what you're getting out of him every week. And I like the fact that you mentioned Emmanuel Sanders, who I think is a perfect number two complimentary fit because how quick he gets in and out of breaks. And I think he can run a lot of those crossing routes and stuff that'll work with Drew Brees in the Superdome. Uh, Emmanuel Sanders certainly exploded in that Niners Saints shootout. And I feel like Sean Payton saw that game. It's just like, man, we got to get this guy uh, opposite Mike Thomas. Jared Cook emerged a lot the second half of the season. You know, sometimes we've seen when the Saints bring in free agents, Sean Payton runs a complicated offense. I think, you know, maybe it took him seven, eight, nine, ten weeks. He was a little banged up to get it figured out. But, you know, I think Emmanuel Sanders and Jared Cook's emergence is going to take a little bit of pressure off Mike Thomas this year. Maybe Thomas gets a few less targets, too, because of it. But I feel good about about the Saints' offense. I think they're going to be more balanced with Sanders and Cook stepping up. You got an MVP pick? Man, I'll never go against Patrick Mahomes. I just can't. He's my voice brother. One of my he talks exactly <laughs> like me. I do fake fake Patrick Mahomes segments where I just say outlandish stuff on the radio. He never say, and it always gets a funny gets a funny response. But man, I, look, I, I've watched sports my entire life, football my entire life for like thirty years. I've you know been gambling on it for over twenty, and man, I've never seen anything like Patrick Mahomes ever and the fact that he's with Andy Reid and the weapons they have and speed and I, I love I can't wait to see what Clyde Edwards Hilaire does out of the backfield too that's going to give him another weapon I mean if he if he, I'll never go against him I just can't do it so I know it's a very boring pick to say Patrick Mahomes is the favorite but you know I, I think if he stays healthy he's going to be the greatest quarterback of all time I, I really believe that tend to agree there Ben Mintz ESPN 104.5 in Baton Rouge with us let's turn the page over to the NBA we had uh, Mark Medina on the show yesterday live inside of the bubble and I I asked him how much does this four-month layoff impact the way you look at certain teams based on their makeup and how they've handled it he didn't uh, really have a good inkling because we didn't ask him from a gambling perspective either we just asked him as far as you know who you think is going to win the title just when one way or another when you're laying bets down on these early NBA games, especially that start next week and even futures too. I mean, Lakers are the favorite to win the title alongside uh, Milwaukee. They're basically uh, the same odds to win, but is there anything you look at with a four and a half month layoff that we've never seen before? How are you going to bet these early games that start next week, not seeing any basketball for four and a half months? Well, there's a few angles to look into just trying to think outside the box because this is a whole new situation. They're in a bubble. There's no home court advantage. There's no travel. And the first thing I kind of think about is, you know, these veteran NBA guys who've been doing this their entire life, they've never trained their bodies to have a season stop and restart a season. I feel like this might have this, some of this, this weird dynamics might favor some young blood. You know, a team, the Pelicans certainly young and deep. I think that's a positive for them. 
because it's just that we're dealing with an uncharted situation. And guys that are 10, 15 year vets in the league, you know, you train your body to get ready for that 82 game marathon season and playoffs. And, you know, they've never had to play a big season of 60 games and then shut it down for three months and come back. And I wonder how people's bodies will adjust. I also wonder they've done a great job uh, with no people testing positive at 386. And, you know, I know Russell Westbrook is back now with the Rockets from quarantine, but you got to feel like somebody's going to catch COVID at some point and have to miss a couple of weeks. And, you know, that could be a dynamic in the playoffs where what if some star players catch COVID and have to sit out? So, you know, when it comes to that, I think depth could be more of an issue than people realize. So when you look at well, – let's go long-term. Is it still – I mean, L.A., L.A., Milwaukee, and everybody else is outside looking in as far as teams that can actually win the title. Well, the the one the one you mentioned, it's the second L.A. is the one that I like a lot because the Clippers held back Paul George and Kawhi so much in the first 60 games of the year. Kawhi never played back-to-backs. George was banged up. They were 10 deep. They have a lot of depth on that roster. And I feel like they've been holding back, kind of waiting to peak late. And uh, I think that the L.A. Clippers and, you know, let's be honest, uh, you know, neutral floor, you know, the home court advantage the Lakers always have that the Clippers didn't have, you know, all that gets wiped out here, too. So I kind of think the Clippers are in a really, really good situation uh, with this. And it'd be so crazy. What if we have a Lakers Clippers Western Conference Finals in Orlando? You know, the Staples Center thing. It's so nuts (laughs) just even to even to think about. The other team I want to mention that's interesting to follow is the Houston Rockets, who are eight to one. But the reason they're so interesting to me is because, you know, they're such a great regular season team with Dan Tony. They do the three-pointer or layup thing. They're all about the analytics. Then when they get to the playoffs, the games are different. The refs let you be way, way more physical. You know, Houston's always a little deficient on defense. You know, this year, now that they traded Capella, they're going – I mean, they're playing complete small ball. My question is this. Are the officials going to call these games different? I mean, is this going to feel like street basketball? You know, in Orlando, this could be a whole different dynamic for playoffs. And if it's a different dynamic, uh, maybe that favors Houston as opposed to, you know, how bad they've struggled through the years in the playoffs in the the physical series. And looks like Harden's lost some weight, used the the quarantine time to get into better shape. Yeah, and Westbrook was coming on. Westbrook and Harden – they were kind of figuring things out the first couple months, getting used to playing again together. But man, Westbrook came on so strong the last six to eight weeks. It felt like he really grasped his role. And I know that the small ball thing wasn't popular. You know, they're basically playing PJ Tucker's six, six at the five, but you know, I mean, sometimes fortune favors the bold. It's going to be tough to see how they could ever stop uh, the Clippers or Lakers down low. But uh, if Westbrook and Harden get really hot, you never know. I think they're the out. They're they're the underdog. I'd look at if somebody can make a run. Man, call me crazy. I think the Lakers are really vulnerable. Uh, you do, especially and now with the injuries at guard, and, and so really good guard play is something that they're not going to be able to defend very well. No, I feel that way about the Lakers too. It kind of did this stop of the season. I think hurts them more than anybody. With uh, you know LeBron certainly being older, even though he was having a great year. I mean, it felt like they were the best team headed for the one seed and all that, but now one seed isn't going to be home court anymore. And as I said, the guy, I think the Clippers have been holding back all year, and I think we're going to see them peak. And so they're, they're the team. I'd say they're the favorite. I like them more in the West than the Lakers. Uh, Kawhi Leonard got all the load management he's needed over the last four and a half months, I think. Yeah, exactly. And then like, and Paul George has been hurt too. And, man, the thing about them – 
they still were, you know, the number two seed in the West, even not even having their guy, their star guys a lot. And, you know, Jerry West has just done such a phenomenal job in the front office with them and Doc Rivers coaching and the depth they've been able to create. And, you know, they're an organization, you know, you think about how big of a joke they were forever. It's, uh, it's very impressive what they've been able to build. Yeah, that core is much better than the Lakers core. Now, the Lakers have uh, two of the top five players in the world, and that changes things some, but uh, the Clippers' core. I mean, they had to deal some guys to, to make Kawhi and, and Paul George work, but what they came to was a much better situation than what LeBron and AD came to in Los Angeles. Well, and Paul, Paul George and Kawhi kind of played the same position. So they're, I feel like they still were figuring out, you know, how that all works, uh, you know, as far as sharing the basketball and stuff. And, I mean, I just think it's going to work. Like I said, I just think the depth, uh, Paul, Kawhi certainly has proven – more than enough that you can trust him in the playoffs. And so uh, I'd say the Clippers are my pick in the West, like I said. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, turning the page to baseball. A lot of good picks from you, by the way. This has been awesome. Um, how do you bet opening day? Man, the thing with baseball, what I like to do in baseball, this is going to be fun because I used to be so – I was like a super fancy baseball nerd and following all the minor leagues and love uh, you know, following the pitching staffs and just everything – and I'm bringing all that back for this season. And let me tell you why, Mr. Porky. We got a 60-game college baseball-style season. My problem with MLB was never anything but the 162 games. If it doesn't matter if they win or lose, then how am I supposed to care as a fan? It's too many games. <laughs> well, now in a 60-game season, it reminds me of college baseball because they're playing 10 games each in their divisions. So that's like conference. That's like SEC. And – it's a whole different dynamic where every game counts. And then, you know, one thing I think Vegas is really messed up on, uh, on the handicapping of baseball, is they haven't adjusted the favorites' lines. Sure, the Dodgers are a massive favorite in a 162-game season or the Yankees. But in a 60-game season, it's baseball. Anything can happen for 15, 20, 25 games. Let's say last year, after 60 games, the Nationals were 10 games under 500 at Memorial Day. And – the Dodgers are known for slower starts, too. They usually crank it up big. So in only a 60-game season, I think there's a lot of value. If you can find some underdogs, some kind of middle-tier teams that you, you think have some stuff uh, you like, because the Dodgers and Yankees are both just kind of overvalued, in my opinion. Oh, I like that. So what are your picks uh, tomorrow? We've got Yankees-Nats. Um, that's at 6 o'clock, right, tomorrow? And then the nightcap is Giants-Dodgers. Uh, have, you, have you thought about putting money down on either of those two games? I've looked at them, but what we've been looking more at, honestly, is the futures and division odds and the team win totals. And I've got a couple of really good win totals I like uh, for the 60 games. The, t the teams I like, okay, I got a few. I like the San Diego Padres over 30 and a half wins a lot. I really like this team. I think Paddock's going to emerge as an ace. And what you're dealing with is a weird situation. A lot of these starting pitchers are going to be on pitch count starting the year. And I think bullpen is going to be more important than ever. And San Diego's got a lot of good young arms in that pen. Manny Machado disappointed some last year. I think Fernando Tatis is going to be – Junior is going to be one of the emerging stars in baseball. This is a team that can rake. And the reason I like them too is I'm kind of – you know I think the Giants and Rockies are really, really struggling. I don't think the Diamondbacks are going to be anything too, too great. And so other than the Dodgers, they're in a spot to really maybe make a run at the wild card. And at 30 and a half, I like the over. I think they can win 34, 35 games. So that's one of them. Uh, in the American League – the team I'm watching on a flyer, and this is just strategy-wise, they're 9-1 to to win the American League. is actually the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. And I don't think they can beat the Yankees in the division. But when I think about the Devil Rays, when you look at the AL Cy Young, 
three of the top six guys are Tampa. Schnell, Glassnow, and Charlie Morton, all 14 to one or less. If they can just sneak into a one-game wild card and pitch one of their aces, they're going to be a nightmare in three out of five or four out of seven series with that pitching staff. I know their offense isn't great, but if they can just sneak in there, they're going to be a tough team to beat in the playoffs because, you know, you saw it in the Nationals last year, man. You got the power arms. You're going to be tough to beat in postseason. You got Ben Mintz, uh, just a couple minutes left with him, ESPN 104.5 in Baton Rouge. Um, the Atlanta Braves, we got Brave, Braves country around here for sure. Tons of Braves fans around. Um, they were going to get Yasiel Puig, and then he tested positive, so he's still a free agent. What do you think? 33-and-a-half over-under for the Braves. Well, I, I really like this team I, a lot. I, I, I love what they've built the last few years. I mean, they've done everything but the playoff thing. I mean, they've been really, really strong and so much good young talent. I'm glad to see Freddie Freeman hopefully feeling a little better because it uh, certainly sounded like he had a bad case of COVID. I think Soroka is going to have a solid year pitching, too, for him. Uh, I feel good about the Braves. I like them more. They're my favorite in the East. The Nationals losing Anthony Rendon is going to hurt them. Uh, I think their lineup's a little little weaker because of that. I mean, Rendon, I have uh, an incredibly high opinion of him. The Phillies are a little bit of a sleeper in the NL East. I, I like Aaron Nola, the former LSU Tiger, but I still wonder about their rotation depth. Uh, I like the Braves to win the NL East, but the one thing, that's a tough division. And this year with the division play, 10 games each against the Nationals, Phillies, Mets, I mean, granted, the Marlins are bad, but, you know, the Braves have a tougher schedule, so I don't know if I'd necessarily take the over, but I, I kind of do like them in the East. And the last thing, we, we've asked every guest so far over the last couple of weeks about your confidence level in football happening. Well, college football, because I think, you know, you probably agree, the NFL is going to play. They are going to play. There's no doubt about it. What's your confidence level in college football playing, at least the SEC Power Five? Well, okay, I'm close to it just hearing everything down here in Baton Rouge because ESPN Baton Rouge is so close to LSU. Uh, Last week it was down as low as 40 or 45 percent. I'd say it's gained about 10 percent since then. I'm probably at about 50 to 55. Uh, I like the news yesterday, the University of Texas sending out emails to all their season ticket holders saying to expect 50 percent in the stands in a season. I like hearing that confidence because – you know, not coincidentally, Texas and LSU have a huge non-conference game scheduled. And what I'm hearing is they're going to try to do SEC only and then keep Georgia, Georgia Tech, Louisville, Kentucky, Clemson, South Carolina, LSU, Texas. I don't know if they're going to try to get Ole Miss Baylor as a non-neutral site game. Maybe Tennessee, Oklahoma. They're trying to have an SEC, Big 12, ACC partnership for one non-conference game and conference only. And, you know, that would obviously, Borky, you and I are both in sports radio. We, we, we would certainly be happy about that. And that was Ben Mintz, again, 104.5 ESPN in Baton Rouge. Uh, I just love the energy. Really good stuff there from Ben. Uh, he'll be back on the podcast once football season comes around. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I, I, really, I really did. So I hope you did as well. We'll go ahead and wrap up here. Uh, thank you for making the podcast a part of your day. And uh, don't forget to stop by and see Greg at LB's. Tell him we sent you. And uh, follow me on Twitter at Michael Borky. And Facebook at Michael Borky. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, rate, and review the show as well. So until Friday, have a great week. And I'll talk to you again, well, on Friday. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.